In this episode of Full Stack Radio, Ben Ornstein and I share nine of our favorite refactorings that you can use to clean up your code. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 78. Hey everybody, welcome to Full Stack Radio episode 78. Uh, Today I'm welcoming back to the show Ben Ornstein, who was on the show, I don't even remember when, maybe a year and a half ago or maybe even two years ago. And uh, what we wanted to talk about today was uh, a bunch of refactoring stuff, since Ben is kind of known as uh, one of the refactoring guys in the refactoring world. (laughs) So how's it going, Ben? It's going great. Thanks for having me back. So uh, I guess maybe for anybody who isn't familiar with you or didn't listen to the episode that we did before, do you mind just briefly uh, introducing yourself and telling the world what you're all about? Yeah, totally. Well, I'm one of the refactoring guys, apparently. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, so I'm primarily a Rubyist. Uh, I worked at ThoughtBot for about six years. Uh, I left about six months ago to strike out on my own to make courses. But um, while I was at, at ThoughtBot, I did a lot of talks about refactoring and how to make code better and gave a few talks that uh, seemed to get pretty popular and kind of struck a chord with people. And lo and behold, I got dubbed one of the refactoring guys, <laughs> which is funny how fast that happens. Yep. Awesome. So uh, I thought what we would do today is just kind of do a little bit of back and forth, kind of sharing some of our uh, favorite refactorings and uh, talking a little bit about them and uh, just hopefully sharing some of that with the world and people can kind of learn from the things that we think are cool and and hopefully pick up a a new trick or two so totally uh, maybe you want to get us started yeah you know i actually had a thought about sharing kind of like a meta topic around this okay uh, or sort of meta ideas around refactoring to get going and the first is when is a good time to refactor because having Mm -hmm. a catalog of refactorings is you know it's worthwhile uh, it's worth knowing these things, but knowing when to deploy them, I think, is is kind of important. Yep. And my, I have sort of a couple personal rules that have served me well. Uh, one is that I like to refactor right before I'm trying to make a change that I think is going to be difficult. Yep. So uh, I have some sort of task I need to do, and I look at all the code and I say, "Wow, if I if I change the code as is, I'm going to need to do something like shotgun surgery. Like I'm going to need to make this change in a whole bunch of different places." And so often the first refactoring I'm doing is to um, make it so that I only need to change one place. Totally. That's that like kind of super famous Kent Beck tweet, right? The uh, exactly. first make the change easy, then make the easy change. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that serves me really well. And, and I will almost always do that as a separate pull request, by the way. Mm-hmm. So I'll first like, like I'll, I'll open up a PR saying this is a preparatory refactoring for this feature I'm working on. And then... Um, that will I've actually had the experience where that will get merged and then the feature changes or we decide not to do that feature or something and uh, the it ends up not being in preparation of that but it still improves the code in some way so it's kind of nice I'll have that small refactoring win even if I don't end up uh, implementing that feature totally yeah I think that's probably the best time to refactor if I honestly can't think of many other situations where it's it's really easy to justify like I know a lot of teams talk about you know having like a dedicated refactoring week or something but in my experience that never works out as well as just doing it right before it's going to make something else easier for you it's sort of the same with testing right like oh we're going to have a week we're going to go in and backfill a bunch of tests for a week it doesn't work that way just do it Mm -hmm. as you're working it's the only kind of way to make it happen for sure 
Totally. I, I think this is true of a lot of things. Uh, you, ju- you have to work in small bits. Like you can't just have a big blast. Like, okay, now let's, let's focus on code quality for this week. Like if you're mm-hmm. not focusing on it the whole time, it's just, it's not going to happen. But uh, there's one other scenario where I, I tend to think about refactoring, which is when I found a bug, because to me, a bug indicates that you didn't understand the code. Like you, the code was not clear enough to understand it. And that's how the bug was able to hide there. So often when I'm investigating, once I've diagnosed a bug, once I've figured out what it is, I will say, what kind of refactoring could I apply that will make this bug more obvious and then fix the bug? It's totally. still sort of the same idea, but kind of a different flavor. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense too. I think there's also a situation where trying to solve that same problem, there's sort of two ways that you could solve a bug, right? You can sort of patch some Band-Aid on that kind of checks for that specific case and tries to solve it. Or you could try and rework things to sort of make that bug impossible. You know right. what I mean? Yep. And I think that's a, another kind of related opportunity for that sort of work too. Yeah, totally. Cool, man. So uh, what is your first favorite refactoring tip? Okay. So this one is is kind of general. So there, there are a lot of like named uh, refactorings. This one is, is maybe not quite a named refactoring, but it's something that I find myself reaching for over and over again, which is to make the implicit explicit. Okay. So when you read... So what I found is that there's often sort of lore that gets passed from developer to developer. And it's lore about like how the system works or what things are called, um, how the functionality is supposed to operate. And so let me, I'll give you an example. Uh, or like what things really mean is kind of what I'm getting at. So often I will see something like um, in a conditional, there'll be some sort of compound thing. Like if a user is logged in and you know, spam score dot new for user is low, something like this. And that compound conditional is really trying to say some sort of higher level idea, which is like, if this user is too risky to allow to post or something along those lines. And if, if, I, was, if I were to describe that body of that conditional to you or to another developer, I would use that higher level concept, but often it doesn't appear in the code. Like people just sort of force the reader to piece together that higher level concept. And I love to do things like extract a method to put a name to that higher level concept. That, and I, I make that implicit thing explicit. And I do the same thing with like if I have a long method and there's like some sort of intermediate calculation that goes on. Uh, I'm, all, I'm almost always trying to uh, put names to those things. So it's like, okay, here I see we're summing across this array and we're dividing by this. And wh- like, why are we doing this? Oh, because we need to calculate the average thing for this before we get to this next step. Okay, let's grab a method. Let's put a name on it. Let's call that average score of whatever uh, and, and take those implicit things, make them explicit. Yeah, that's a good one. I think um, another situation where you might do that is if you find yourself wanting to add like a comment to something, right? To explain something. Totally. A lot of time you can just extract a method that basically reads just like the comment and kind of solves that problem for you. Exactly. Awesome. Okay, uh, I'll give a go with one that I really like, which is, again, kind of a, not like a super web-specific one or anything, but something that I find myself uh, looking for opportunities to use a lot, which is a, a named refactoring from the refactoring book called Introduce Parameter Object. So mm-hmm. the motivation for this one is basically if you find yourself with an object where you have maybe like three methods in that object and you're passing parameters between these three methods and you always see like a couple of these parameters always being passed around together. The classic example is maybe like start date, end date, and this gets passed to every single method. You never pass the start date without passing the end date. A lot of time that's sort of an indicator that you have like 
an actual concept there that you haven't extracted or identified. In that case, it might be something like an actual date range object uh, that encapsulates that start date and end date. And now you can just pass that one object around. Um, and I think the really cool thing about this refactoring is it has this side effect of all of a sudden you have this object that starts to attract behavior that was sort of in the wrong place before. So now that you have like an object that encapsulates like the start date and end date, maybe you had a place that was checking to see if some date was in between those dates or something. Um, that is the sort of logic that now you can put on this new object that you identified and you can have like a date range dot contains method where you pass in a date and check if it's in there. Um, so I really like that refactoring because it, it just, it helps you find like new nouns in your system. And every time that you can like give something a new name or like identify some new concept, it always starts to act as like a magnet for cleaning up code that's around it and becomes like a nice central place for, for logic related to that data. Yeah. I love that. That, that example I think is, is like a, the, a specific case of a general thing, which is data clump. Mm -hmm. where it's like data that shows up together often. And sometimes it's in parameter lists and sometimes it's in methods or objects or things like that. Uh, and it's like when you see things that are close together a lot, they probably want to be a new object. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, love it. Uh, what's your next one? Uh, my next one is also a named refactoring from the refactoring book, which is replace conditional with polymorphism. Um, and I, this is this is one of those uh, object-oriented ones, so it doesn't make sense if you're in a functional language. But if we're going to write OO code, we should leverage the OO, OO uh, functionality that we have in our languages. So imagine a system where you are frequently checking for what something's class is or asking questions and trying to decide what to do um, in conditionals. Uh, this refactoring has you instead replace that with just calling the method that you want on an object and using different instances uh, instances of, of different classes to decide what to do. Mm -hmm. So maybe you have like a Facebook comment poster and a Twitter comment poster that both have a post method on it. And your calling code just calls post without caring what object it's actually calling it on. It just knows, hey, I want this to get posted somewhere. You handle it. Versus in that conditional saying, if we have one of these, post over to here, post to Facebook. If we have one of these, paste, post to Twitter. Totally. Yeah, I think that's one of my all-time favorite refactorings too. Um, I gave a talk a couple years ago that was kind of focused on this refactoring where the example was um, you have like a e-commerce system or something where you have an order and a coupon and you want to apply this coupon to the order and it's going to affect like the total price of this order in some way. And the kind of the initial code and the orders sort of calculate discount method, it would check to see if it had a coupon attached to it. And then it would check to see what's the value of the coupon. Okay, I'll subtract that from the total price. But then we wanted to add this idea of um, having different types of coupons. Maybe you have a coupon that uh, gives you like a percentage off versus a coupon that gives you like a fixed amount off. And all of a sudden in the order class, you're basically saying, well, if the coupons type is fixed, well, then we just want to subtract coupon value from the order total. But if the coupons value is percentage, well, then we want to multiply the order value by a hundred minus the coupon value. And by creating like different types for those coupons, like distinctly different classes that can kind of contain that discount logic, you can refactor that whole thing to just um, defer to the actual coupon class. And what we ended up doing in the talk is basically the order would just ask the coupon to discount itself by just passing itself into the coupon. And the coupon was entirely responsible for determining what the, the total price was, um, mm -hmm. which worked out to be, to be really slick. And I like that refactoring for sort of the same reason as the parameter object when we were talking about 
because it helps you sort of find the right place to put logic a lot of the time. Like if mm-hmm. you're trying to figure out, well, okay, I have this conditional here. Is there any way that I could solve this uh, with polymorphism? It kind of gives you that clue that, well, maybe this logic can be moved to some other object. And a lot of the time, the home that the logic ends up in, in, in my opinion, is a lot of the time different than what you might intuitively think based on thinking like, well, is it this object's responsibility to do this or this object's responsibility to do this? Um, if you let the code just sort of guide you and tell you where this stuff should go based on trying to do things like avoid conditionals and things like that, I think a lot of time you end up with um, interesting solutions that are different than what you might have intuitively expected. Totally. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention a specific instance of this refactoring, which is um, the null object refactoring, mm. replace conditional with null object. So this is the same idea, but just a specific instance, which is uh, if you are constantly checking for nil or null, whatever your language calls it, uh, you could instead create an object to stand in for that case. So a, a classic example that I find myself reaching for in basically all of my apps. So I, I'm, I write Rails apps and we're concerned about current user a lot. And so the, the, the d- default kind of naive way of, of writing a method like current user is if there's a user, return it, otherwise return nil. And when you have that, your calling code, like for instance, in the view, I'm like, okay, I want to show the logout button if someone's logged in. If current user is present, show the logout button. Uh, and that sort of if current user present shows up all over the place. Like you will write that method again, or that, that call again and again and again. If instead of returning nil when there's no user, you returned something like guest or call it null user if you want, but, but imagine as, as a guest, uh, you can delete all of those conditionals and instead just have the guest user know what to do when it's called. And generally that's nothing. Like it, it's, it sort of will have often like no behavior uh, or return the right things uh, for a guest user. Like, for instance, it probably would say, uh, just don't return, don't show anything for that logout link. Uh, and that's this, this is one of those things where it's like, I introduce a simple class that has maybe three or four methods on it, and then I can go delete like 40 conditionals. Mm-hmm. So one thing with that specific example, which I think um, kind of gets people asking questions a lot of the time, is to remove that conditional, you would have to create some sort of method on user and guest that's like logout link or something, right? Yeah. And how do you try and balance like when it's worth solving a problem like that with polymorphism versus just kind of a gut feeling of, uh, I don't really like that I'm putting this type of logic into the user. Like I don't like that this is returning HTML or, do, or do something like that. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah, I think those trade-offs are why we get paid the big bucks. Because there's rarely anything that's like, this is a clear win and there are no downsides. There's just like none of that in programming as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. And so I like I always like to look at my refactorings after I've done them and say like, is this substantially better? And like try to enumerate the pros and cons after that. Um, there are ways to get around returning HTML from a, like a backend class like that. But the sort of higher level question is, how many conditionals am I nuking by this? What's the maintenance burden of this new class? What's the loss of clarity that we have by a, you know, a new object in the system or, or gain of clarity? Um, and so I think the answer is kind of like, you're going to have to look at it in each, each case-by-case basis and yeah. then make a judgment call. And there's, there's not much I've found that will help that judgment call beyond doing it a bunch of times. Like yeah. You'll have this wisdom that I think develops a sort of a instinct around it. And I'm not sure there's a shortcut to that. Yeah, for sure. Makes sense.
Something I think is related to the null object uh, pattern that I think is just an interesting idea in general is something I think I've seen Sandy Metz talk about as um, her goal is always to just try and make things as the same as possible all the time. Mm. Like just avoid mm-hmm. special cases, even if it comes at the cost of doing what kind of seems like unnecessary work sometimes. Mm-hmm. And like another example of like a null object, which isn't even an object in a lot of languages is just like using an empty array instead of null. And then, you know, maybe you have like an array of strings that you need to implode into something to display something somewhere. Um, instead of having null and just checking, well, if it's null, just return an empty string. You could just implode an empty array, which is also going to return an empty string. Now, it was totally unnecessary to do the imploding work because there were no items, but it just mm-hmm. makes the code that much simpler, right? There's just like one thing it can do, which is always nice. Yep. No, I like that. And and that's so the the guest is one example of of replacing um of replacing conditionals with a null object but yeah empty array totally works as well like i I try to never return nil i don't want to pass nil around and i definitely don't want to return it so when i have a a situation like say there was a query method like return me all the users that something something um i would never return nil if i didn't find any i would return an empty array because you can treat that empty array the same as a full array generally yeah definitely i think that's a good example because i think intuitively a lot of people understand the benefits of returning an empty array instead of null for those situations and trying to Mm -hmm. apply that sort of thinking to situations where you're returning just an individual object and trying to think what is like the no-op version of this what can i just like safely return that people can act on and it's not going to give unexpected results or whatever it's an interesting exercise yeah totally and and just just don't co-opt nil or null for your own purposes like, don't use it to stand in for a missing thing. If you, if you avoid that, you will tend to have good results. Love it. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So here's what Paul, the founder of CircleCI, had to say about one of their favorite features of Rollbar and how it helps them keep things running at CircleCI. Before we used Rollbar, we used a different error tracking service, and we were shopping for a new one. And so we did the, the tour and looked at, at Rollbar and all of its competitors, and it was it was really the feature set of Rollbar that was super impressive and that made us go there. In particular, the people tracking, I think, is, is really... Uh, it's it's not just a great feature, but it also kind of speaks our language because we're very focused on making sure that customers are happy. And we want to make sure that we have like an individual understanding of what happens to each customer. So the fact that we're able to click on you know, th- this customer is experiencing a lot of bugs and to be able to follow the, the progression of bugs that they've been experiencing is very important. If we get an email from a customer and the customer says, you know, your your website keeps glitching on me and being able to to go to Rollbar and to say, okay, you know, this individual customer, this is how they're experiencing the site. Because otherwise you, you have to give like an overall state of things and overall things are looking good because if they weren't, we'd be dealing with it. So I've been using Rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app, Nitpick CI, and loving it. Uh, if you want to check it out, you can head over to rollbar.com slash fullstackradio, and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So check that out, and uh, thanks again to Rollbar for sponsoring Fullstack Radio. So the next one that I have is kind of um, something that I've sort of, I, I won't say I discovered it, but it's not like a refactoring that I've seen in a book or anything. And uh, I've been calling it replace configuration with callback, which is, is really just an example of when I think this can be powerful. But for example, say you were building like a library that uh, automatically gave you like an admin area for your app or something, right? Maybe mm-hmm. it's like a Rails engine or in other 
you know, frameworks that might be done differently. But say there's like, you need to somehow configure it to tell it which users can access this admin area, right? And for each different application or situation, some people might want to say, well, here's a list of IDs that are the users that are allowed to access it. Or any user who has an email at this domain is allowed to access it or any user in this list of emails or any user who has this role. Um, there's all sorts of situations, right? And what I've seen happen in projects in the past is when you get into situations like this, a lot of time people will try to solve all as many situations as they can think of by adding new configuration options and adding new ways to do things. Um, when what I think is a better solution is to just try and defer that logic entirely to the consumer and just saying, uh, give me a block or give me a callback that contains mm. the logic that I need to do to decide whether this person should have access to this area. And I'll just run that. And I don't really care if it's emails or IDs or anything, it's just something that returns true or false. You know what I mean? And it's totally under mm -hmm. your control, just sort of pushing that logic out. Hmm. What do you think about that? It sounds interesting. I mean, one advantage I think that I'm seeing is that you can determine that at runtime. Like if that block, block gets executed later, whatever the current state of the system can answer whether or not someone can access that admin area, mm -hmm. which is nice because the you don't have to configure it at the start of totally. the app. It can be based on session data or or exactly. whatever else. Yeah, whatever the current state of the world is, you don't need to. De you can sort of defer that answer to later, which I think is usually uh, gives you a little bit more power. Yeah, and I all speaking of power, I also like that it effectively gives you the entire power of the language to answer that question: who should have access here? So rather than like having to take configuration in a certain way and try to think of like, how do we give people a flexible system for determining access? You say you have all of Ruby or PHP or whatever to do logic to answer this question, who should have access? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, it's, it's been a really sort of powerful approach in general, just like trying to take advantage of higher order functions more and more, you know, just yeah. being able to offload things to the consumer or at least give them like that option. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So maybe you do support configuration for simple cases, but having this sort of like escape valve of like, if you need to do something complex, I'm not even going to try and support it. You just tell me what to do. Just give me the little pieces totally. of code that I need to run and I'll run it. And I think that yep. has been a powerful way to, to simplify a lot of things for me anyways. Totally agree. What do you got next? My next is a method object. Okay. You know method object? I know of method object, but I'd be interested okay. to hear your uh, definition and examples. Yeah, so the, so the refactoring book calls this replace method with method object. So um, this shows up if you have a long method that uses a lot of like local data to do something. And uh, the refactoring is to extract a, uh, a, a method object, which is basically an, a simple object that takes takes that local data that you need to perform your calculation and has basically one method, one public method on it, which is like run or compute or call or something like that. Um, and then you can extract private methods for the, the sub calculations uh, that that uh, calculator needs. And so um, like a price an example might be like a price calculator. So on order, you have a method called price and that price method needs a bunch of data like the primary price, the secondary price, the coupon code, the, the whatever, and then it does a bunch of computations. So uh, I might for that price method, just call like price calculator dot new with the data it needs dot compute. 
And then I can uh, sort of massage that calculation into a way that makes a lot of implicit things explicit and has a lot of short methods and has a very small public interface uh, and it's easy to test and, and usually pretty easy to follow. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think um, one of my favorite things about uh, that sort of refactoring is just that a lot of time you end up with situations where you're you're trying to do this calculation, you're passing uh, parameters around all the time, right? Because yeah. none of them are like instance data on anything. So you end up with mm -hmm. these all these helper functions that are doing parts of this calculation that all kind of take the same list of parameters over and over again, or at least different pieces of it, uh, because you're mm -hmm. trying to do it in a sort of like functional or stateless way, right? But as soon as you can sort of extract an object that represents this operation, all that stuff can become instance state on that object. Yep. And now you have no parameters in any of these methods and they can all just access, you know, the data that is, you know, the current data for the calculation that we're doing, which is really cool. Totally. When I see myself passing uh, parameters to private methods or methods on my own class, I start to wonder like, isn't there an object that wants to be born here that will have all this data mm -hmm. uh, as its instance state? And by the way, there's a reason that that is, um, that that is better. And it has to do with coupling. So there are different types of coupling in programming. And coupling is the degree to which two components rely on each other. Uh, and higher coupling means if you make a change over at A, you might have to change B. And so one type of coupling is parameter coupling. And if I call a method and I pass it no arguments, then I'm pretty decoupled from that, that method. The only coupling I have there is name coupling. Like my code needs to know the name of the method. So if I change the name of the method, I'll have to change my calling code. That's not very painful. But if I'm calling a method that I have to know the name of, but I also have to pass it four parameters, my coupling has gone up a lot. I have to, I have to pass it the four correct parameters. And there are actually a lot of changes that I could make to that called method where I need to now change my calling method because one of the parameters now has different requirements. And so one way to reduce parameter coupling is to do a refactoring like method object, where suddenly you uh, create an object that has instance state, and then all the methods in that object uh, don't need to pass parameters between each other. Awesome. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. I think there's an article that I saw once on the Code Climate blog that I'll have to try and find where uh, they did a refactoring like this. I think it was something about, um, they have a post that's something like why, like, class methods resist refactoring or something in Ruby. And it's a classic. Uh, they talk about doing something similar to this in some ways where basically you have like a static interface, but as soon as you make that call, it internally makes like an instance of itself. So it can do all mm -hmm. these operations using instance state instead of passing parameters around. But that instance is sort of like entirely encapsulated and never leaks out to the outside world and is just sort of privately used, which I think is another mm -hmm. cool example of this sort of refactoring for sure. Totally. Uh, okay, so the next one that I have um, is replace loop with array transformation. So this is definitely mm -hmm. more commonly done just by default in the Ruby world than it is in a lot of other places where you're using like the enumerable module um, to do stuff. But in PHP and even in the JavaScript world, people are still using like a lot of for loops and stuff to do stuff, right? Where you do something like you initialize an empty result variable, you have some for loop that does some stuff that builds up this result variable and then returns it. Um, if you do that sort of thing a lot, you might be surprised to find out that almost anything that you could ever do in that sort of structure already has a name and is a function in some 
library or even in the, the standard library of your language, right? So if you have a result variable and you loop over a bunch of things, perform the same operation on every one and dump it back into the result, well, that's like a map operation. If you loop over everything and you do an if statement to decide whether it should be included in the result, well, that's like a filter operation. And there's all sorts mm -hmm. of really even fancy, crazy ones that Ruby has a lot of really cool ones like each cons and zip and a bunch of uh, fancy mm -hmm. things like that. But if you uh, find yourself with those sorts of like primitive low level structures in your code a lot where you're looping over something to convert it into something else or extract things from it, uh, definitely do yourself a favor and study something like the Ruby enumerable library or uh, my mm -hmm. refactoring to collections book and video series if you're interested in that sort of thing because there's there's all sorts of really cool ways that you can simplify that sort of code down into just like one line uh, most of the time with something that's a lot more expressive once you learn the names of these operations and what they do. Totally. Iteration over a collection performing some operation is a solved problem. Mm -hmm. like if, if you're concerning yourself with indices uh, and and things <laughs> and lower level natures like that, like you're you're not leveraging the the higher level functions in your language. That's, totally, that's usually a bad sign. Yeah, I think iteration should sort of be like a private detail of the array. You know, the array should be the only thing that even knows how to loop over its items, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> for the most part. Yep. I, I, to my the language I learned before Ruby was C. Oddly enough, yeah. And C, you're deeply concerned with your own iteration. Like you always need to set up your uh, your index and figure out where you are offset in the array and how much you want to increment by and all that. And I remember when the first time I remember the first time I saw an each block in Ruby, which is its its like main iteration answer, and it has no index anywhere. Yeah. And I was like, how can this work? Like, where's the index? And it's like, <laughs> like the, the index exists, but you don't have it. You don't see it. You don't need to care about it. And like, it took me a while to grok because it was so foreign. But yeah. when I eventually figured it out, I was just like, this is amazing. Yeah. It was like my, my life changed on that day. Totally. Yeah. And it comes down to that same sort of uh, like the power of um, functions as data too, right? Like being able to pass around totally. like, here's what I want you to do with each of these things. Yes. And, and yep. that's parameterizable. So yeah, it's really cool for sure. That's uh, getting really good with that stuff was one of the more exciting things that happened to me in my programming career in general. Because you just come up with totally different ways to solve so many uh, problems that you're used to solving in this boring old for loop fashion. So that's definitely mm -hmm. a cool one to check out. Uh, what do you got for the next one? Uh, my next one is to uh, replace mutation with immutability. Okay. Uh, and this is something that I got turned on to when I started using Clojure, mm -hmm. which is a Lisp that runs on the JVM. And all of Clojure's built-in data structures, like its arrays, its maps, all that, are immutable. And so if you quote-unquote change one of them, what you instead get is a, a new version of that array uh, with the changes in it. But the old one still exists and never changes out from underneath you. And it's, it's sort of like the question is like, why? Why is this good? Why is it worth doing? Well, here's one example. So if you are a writer, if if you write like web apps, let's say, and you never write library code, this might not be as big a deal to you. Uh, but if you are a, the author of a library, you are constantly doing something known as defensive copying in most languages. So if you pop open, let's say, Rails's source, and you grep it for the dot dupe method, which in Ruby just says, take a copy of this and, and make another one. Um, Rails constantly is dot duping things that come in from the user. And that's because Rails needs to know, hey, once you pass me this data, uh, I might want to change it and I don't want to break you or you might change it and you don't want to break me. And so I have to, con like Rails will constantly make another copy of stuff you pass it. 
and and if when that when they forget that often leads to really subtle bugs and the problem is that the, the data there is not immutable, meaning like I can change it, you can change it, somebody else can change it. Uh, and it creates like these really, it, it doesn't, doesn't create a ton of bugs, but the ones it creates are really hard to, to track down and mm-hmm. really confusing. And this, this kind of reminds me of, so before, before my time, there was this, uh, before my time, people used to do something that was not, that was called unstructured programming. So this is like basic back in the day. Yep. And basic has, has a go-to function in it. So you'd be moving along and then be like, I actually now now go to over here. And structured programming like C came along and said, all right, we're going to get rid of go to. We're not going to go to anymore. And the reason that that was useful is because when you have go to's in your code, it's really hard to answer the question, how did we get here? Like those go to jumps become invisible. There's no stack trace. It's like, how how did I end up on this line? I don't know. Well, with mutable data, it becomes really hard to answer the question, how did the data get this way? Like who changed this and why and how and when? And when you just have this data that can be changed at any point, it's really hard to answer those questions. And so by default now, whenever I write something, I try to write an immutable version of it. So I don't try to, I don't change arrays. I return new versions. If I can write a class that uh, returns like a new instance of itself with the changes already set up, I will do that uh, as opposed to mutating my underlying data. And I found that this reduces that class of bugs a lot. Totally. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it definitely is a tricky one to to make a strong case for like it's one of those things where you sort of have to get bitten by it a lot before you start to really see um the value in it i know like in Mm -hmm. php a really common situation that people get bit with this is on the date time class in php is mutable by default Mm -hmm. so a Mm -hmm. lot of the time you might like have a date that comes in as a parameter and you want to add a month to that to do something else well now that original it does return itself after you add the month but the original one Mm -hmm. has also been uh pushed a month ahead too right so not only is is, yeah not only can that cause like annoying bugs and locally in the code that you're working on whoever passed that into you is screwed too because you've just edited um their object right so it's funny because like there are situations i guess where you want to pass an object into something and and you're sort of expecting not necessarily expecting like that object to get mutated but like the job of the thing that you're passing the object to is to do something with that and give you some modified version of it right so it's sort of hard to like draw the line between when do i expect something to get mutated even though mutating it might really just mean returning a new version uh, Mm -hmm. versus you know when should I feel like I can always pass a parameter and have it never get modified? And it comes down to sort of like the difference between like like entities and values a lot of the time too, right? Like if you're passing like an active record object into something as a parameter, um, mm-hmm. you're not you're probably not expecting to get like a new version of that active record object back a lot of the time, right? Probably so, not. Yeah. So it's tricky sometimes, but definitely in general, I think uh, striving to make things as immutable as possible is the way to go for sure. Do you have any, um, any resources or anything on that topic that, uh, you thought were really interesting? I can share one while you're thinking if you want, which is, uh, yeah, uh, go ahead. Gary Bernhardt has a talk called boundaries. I think it's called where he talks about like mm-hmm. OO and functional programming. And then this idea of sort of taking functional programming principles and applying them to an OO language where he's mostly talking about, uh, immutability and how to sort of combine those. And I, that was a really interesting presentation that talked about that topic a lot. Totally. And by the way, if you're, if, if you get into that sort of functional approach that we talked about earlier, as opposed to low level iteration, 
you're starting to embrace functional programming concepts. And this immutable data idea marries extremely well with the rest of that. Yeah. I think like something that's almost sort of related to this in some ways is I see like temporary variables as a code smell a lot of the time. Um, especially if it's a temporary variable that you're using because you need to like back up some state to do something with it later and it's going to get changed or something in some way. To me, if mm-hmm. you can't model like the work that you're trying to do as sort of like one continuous flow of changes on some data, that's mm-hmm. usually a smell to me, um, which I think is is kind of related. Like you don't want to be having to keep track of state and using it at different times. You just want to just have like the current situation at all times and it's isolated and whatever came into it and whatever goes out of it, you don't have to worry about and no one that came before you or no one comes after you has to worry about it either. Sort of abstract level thinking, but uh, something that I find myself noticing more and more in code anyways. Yeah. And by the way, um, this immutable approach uh, becomes basically essential if you're going to do any sort of concurrency. Mm. And so like the, the more immutable data your data is, the more you can safely share it across, let's say, threads or onto multiple cores. Um, you can share something freely when it's immutable. If, you can, if it's not immutable, you need to constantly be thinking about it. And it's just like it's almost impossible to get those sort of programs right. Yeah. But if, it, it, if, you, if you care at all about, let's say, the multi-core performance, this is a, a critical idea for you. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that's CodeShip. So CodeShip is a hosted continuous integration platform in the cloud that helps you increase your development productivity and ship to production more frequently. CodeShip lets you standardize your tooling and processes across your teams, speeds up your build times, and integrates into your existing ecosystem of tools. CodeShip is a great fit for your team, whether you're just trying to speed up the build times for large apps, or if you want to set up complex delivery pipelines for your microservices using tools like Docker, Kubernetes, and others. Forrester recently released their latest continuous integration tools report, which provides valuable guidance into the rapidly growing continuous integration and continuous delivery market. And CodeShip actually scored as a top five continuous integration vendor in this report. If you're interested in reading this report and learning more about what makes for a great continuous integration and continuous delivery service, uh, you can check out the show notes for this episode and I'll have a link there for you. So if you want to spend less time managing your tools and speed up your software development, give CodeShip a try and sign up for free today at CodeShip.com. I've been a user of CodeShip uh, for many years for all the open source projects that I run continuous integration on, as well as private projects where I use CI, and I couldn't be happier with the service. So thanks to CodeShip for sponsoring the podcast this week, and back to the show. Let's see, I have two more here, but maybe we'll just pick one of them and talk about it a little bit. I think... um, so one that I think is pretty interesting that uh, I use pretty often is what I call introducing a dedicated view object. And really what mm-hmm. I mean here is just creating objects that are sort of sort of closer to the HTML or HTTP level of your application. Like a lot of time you think about like the objects in your domain as being things that just represent, you know, users and orders and things like that. But you can clean up code a lot, a lot of the time by adding objects that are kind of more HTML aware or HTTP aware a lot of the time too, that are not really related to the core domain of your app, but are just kind of used to clean up logic surrounding something that's more presentational. So an example of this, like to me is even something like a form object, right? Where you create like a form object 
that just lets you take, maybe you have a form that needs to create three active record models or edit a relation in some way. And by creating a form object, you have like a home for all of that stuff. Now, even though like the core domain of your app isn't really concerned with forms or anything like that, but giving Mm -hmm. the stuff on that form at home lets you kind of hang methods on there and, and do things in a nicer way. Um, So when I'm talking about something like a view object, I kind of think about it as like, on the other way in. So you have like form objects for things coming in and then view objects for kind of things going out. And the situation that I find myself using them in a lot is maybe you're making like a dashboard or something that has some charts and graphs or a bunch of calculations. And you don't want to sort of clutter up your controller or sort of more backendy domain code with logic that's specific to how does this charting library care about how this array is structured? Because a lot of the time, Maybe you're using something like chart.js or something, and it has this bizarre data structure that it expects you to pass in to render the chart properly, which is maybe not the most beneficial way for you to structure that data everywhere else in your application. So you need like somewhere to sort of do that transformation of the shape of that data. And if you're not creating like a dedicated, you know, dashboard or like sales report object or something that is kind of that knows about what you're going to be doing with this data later then you end up having to put this sort of logic either in a controller or you know even in the model which i don't even think it's that bad to put this sort of thing in the model if you know you're only ever going to be using this one library or rendering it in this one format but as soon as you sort of have multiple output formats or you just kind of want all this stuff together in one place i think creating like a dedicated object to do that sort of work um, can be really useful what do you think uh yeah totally i mean just because you're reaching the boundary of your application like the edge of your application doesn't mean you need need to give up on i know programming ideas yeah like if you have some data that needs transforming and sounds like you might need an object i wouldn't necessarily um shoehorn that into somewhere deep in the back end i might say all right we're going to have like a presenter type object that knows how to manipulate this thing and and make it available to the user in a visual way or something like that i'm into it cool so um maybe to wrap things up here do you have any other sort of high level refactoring uh ideas or or things to keep in mind for people who want to uh, refactor their apps i'll do one more sort of meta idea okay which is which is kind of tongue-in-cheek but not really which is the easiest code to refactor is code that doesn't exist so i think our first job as ironically as programmers is to try to prevent code from being written or try to prevent you know more code from being written so i I sort of think like when whenever i'm looking at a new thing to implement I, i like to ask myself first like can we do this without writing any code or if we have to write code can we do this by writing like a little bit of code instead of a lot of code and what i've found uh, doing a lot of consulting projects and a lot of my own projects is that you can often get 80 to 90% of the benefit with way less code than you suspect um, if you are able to sort of flex certain requirements a little bit. And so I'm, I frequently in my career have sort of pushed back on things and saying, well, can we do this thing that's like almost the same, but just a little bit different, but will save us all this development time? And it turns out the answer is usually yes. Um, it, not Most things aren't critical. And so I sort of think your your first like refactoring is is kind of a weapon against complexity, mm-hmm. um, and I think a, the even better weapon that's that's like a weapon against existing complexity. But an even better weapon is like don't let that complexity show up in the first place. And nothing is less complex as no code. Yeah, can you think of an example of 
a situation that you were able to resolve or a feature that you were able to, you know, quote unquote, add without having to write any code? Um, yeah. Well, yes. So often you can use somebody else's code. And I don't mean like libraries, but like other services. Mm -hmm. So I've had things where it's like, oh, and we should like create some sort of record here and like to record that people have clicked this thing. And it's like, well, could we instead like make a little drop in at the time? It was like, can we drop in a, um, not MailChimp, who is it? Uh, Wufu, can we just drop a Wufu form, embed a Wufu form right here and skip the whole backend part? Mm -hmm. um, and often like during MVP phases, that's the answer is totally yes. So a lot of times I will try to reach for other people's solutions yeah. to things before I, I write my own. You can do a lot of crazy stuff with like Zapier or something now too these days. Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah that's another, another great example. Like you can even write a little bit of code in, in their tool and, and save yeah. yourself a lot of time. I think, um, do you know Peter Levels, the guy who made Nomad List? So he he's pretty awesome. He, uh, he everything he does is just like sort of total opposite of what any programmer would ever want to do. But he had an example like a, a while back. I'll, see, I'll have to see if I can find the tweets or maybe he wrote about it. But he he challenged himself to build a startup without writing any code. Um, mm. And it was something to do with like a I think it was like a luggage pickup and delivery service or something. And he like built this this app, you know, quote unquote app. It had a website and you could you know, tell it where you were going to be going and where you were going to need to get your luggage picked up and stuff. And he managed to like build the whole thing without writing a single line of code just by connecting different services and actually got it kind of working. So if I can mm -hmm. find that, that would be a cool example to share. Totally. Uh, the, the only other thing that I think is, is worth sharing or talking about a little bit is um, I think if you need to refactor some code or want to refactor some code it doesn't always mean that you screwed up the design in the first place oh yeah totally you know what totally. i mean i think a lot of people kind of see it as oh this code needs a lot of refactoring because it's so bad well mm. actually usually it's like this code needs to be refactored to better support features that we didn't need to support before so maybe the design yeah. that you had for the feature set that you had at the time was the perfect design for that feature set but it, that doesn't mean it's going to be perfect forever and it doesn't mean that it's bad as soon as you need to add a new feature if you didn't somehow plan for that to be added by you know having the right hooks available in the code or whatever uh, to begin with so I don't that's know, a great do point any, yeah do you have any more thoughts on that well, I, I think I sort of implied that, ref, like, I, and I said refactoring is a tool to fight complexity. So I think I kind of implied that it meant if you're refactoring code, it's because it's bad. But no, I, I totally agree with you. Often it was just you made the right choice at the right time, but requirements change. Yeah, I think in general, people uh, can easily make this mistake of thinking that, you know, there's one right way to, to write some code, but you know, every app kind of changes and grows over time. So trying to figure out how to accommodate every possible feature or everything in the perfect possible way up front um, to avoid needing to refactor later or something, I think is a, mm -hmm. a bad mindset to have. I think refactoring totally should just be accepted as it's, it's not you cleaning up a mess that you made. It's just you're refactoring the code. You're factoring it differently to better support some, some new addition. You know what I mean? Right. And, and it's, you're not refactoring is effectively changing your trade-offs. So every, every solution has certain pros and cons and refactoring is saying, okay, I'm going to opt for different pros and cons now mm -hmm. in a different shape. Yeah. And that needs, leads me nicely to my plug. Can I plug my thing? Absolutely. <laughs> plug it away. All right. So um, I made a course called Refactoring Rails. And it's, 
uh, what I tried to do is for so it's a, it's it's almost like a catalog of the refactorings and best practices that I found to be really useful for maintaining Rails apps once they're past like a year old because you know the first twelve months are always easy. It's like the next whatever that are really hard <laughs> um, as you get more and more code there. Um, and so for each refactoring and each best practice, I tried to always enumerate the pros and cons to them. So it's like, here is like, okay, one thing you might consider instead of an active record callback is a decorator. But that is just a different set of trade-offs. Like there are pros and cons to decorators and there are pros and cons to callbacks. And it may be that your situation calls for one or the other. Yeah. And so I tried to be careful never to say like, always do this or this is always great. It's like, here are the pros, here are the cons. And the, you're going to have to choose. Yeah. You have to use your brain. I think that's a really good point. I think a lot of people are searching for ways to not use their brain. And I know I've been guilty of that in the past too. You want to find like the silver bullet that that just solves this thing so you never have to think yeah. about it again. But uh, if that was true, then we wouldn't get paid to, to program. So That's right. Cool, yeah. man. So where can people uh, learn more about refactoring Rails? Uh, refactoringrails.io is a good place to start. Uh, if you go there, I will send you quite a, quite a number of free lessons, honestly. Uh, so if you drop your email, uh, you can see quite a bit of what the course is like. And uh, yeah, that's probably a good place. Awesome. Uh, what about uh, your other thing that you got going on here? Do you think that's maybe something worth sharing? Sure. Yeah, why not? Um, so I'm running a thing, uh, at sort of an ongoing course called the Code Quality Challenge. And it's at codequalitychallenge.com. And the format is uh, we, as a group, commit uh, for 30 days to work on tiny code quality wins Monday through Friday. And so uh, I send out something uh, every morning. And as a group, we apply it to our code bases and then sort of check in on the forum and, and share the results and, and offer help and tips and things like that. And the first cohort is actually wrapping up this week. Uh, and so I'll be opening up a new cohort soon. I haven't decided on the exact start date, but it should be in time um, for people who are hearing this to get in the very next one. And uh, so if that sounds like you, it's, uh, it's language agnostic, by the way, so you can join with any language. Uh, and it's also free. Uh, we had about 600 people in the first cohort. And so a lot of people signed up with their team and found that to be really successful. Like a number of people at the same company doing it together. I think that's like a really smart idea. And so if you're interested, codequalitychallenge.com is where to go. Awesome. So what is the best way for people to kind of uh, keep up with what you're doing? Uh, a couple options. Uh, one is just my Twitter. Uh, I'm R00K on Twitter. Uh, or uh, you can hop on my personal newsletter, which is benorenstein.com slash newsletter. And I try to, that's sort of the meta list where I announce pretty much everything that I'm doing. Cool, man. Well, it was a uh, pleasure having you on to talk about this stuff. Hopefully uh, people take away some interesting ideas uh, to apply to their applications. Thanks for coming on, man. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. If you're interested in show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 78. Uh, thanks to Rollbar and CodeJip for sponsoring the podcast this week. And uh, leave us a five-star review on iTunes if you get a chance, because uh, I just got an email today that said there was no new iTunes reviews, and it really made me question, should I keep doing this podcast or should I just shut it down entirely? So that is up to you, dear listener. Uh, anyways, thanks for listening, and uh, I'll see you next time. Thanks.